For those of you who've been joining us, you know that uh, the past few chapters of Esther uh, really move along. After providing some initial snapshot images spread throughout over the course of a few years or, or drawn from a few years of separation in the opening chapters, uh, the middle chapters of the book, which are where the, the meat of the story takes place, it happens very rapidly. And so we get the idea that chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, and even 7 take place over the course of just a couple days. In fact, we're going to look today at chapter 6, and it, it follows right on the heels of chapter 5, which has Haman leaving the first of what's going to be two private dinners with the queen and king. And as he's leaving the first dinner, he's walking home and he's happy because what he values above all else is public recognition. And what else could be, could be more supremely uh, impressive than to be seen as having had dinner with the queen and the king. So he's thrilled, but it all disappears in an instant when Mordecai doesn't stand as he's walking by. And all that stuff, all that good just evaporates, and all he can think about is how much of a burr in his saddle, under his saddle Mordecai is. So he goes home, he summons his friends, his kids, his wife, and he recounts his glory and they say, just, just kill this joker. And so he goes, yeah, I like that idea. And so he erects a massive 75-foot-tall gallows, way excessive, because he wants to put Mordecai on public display. He wants it to be known far and wide. This is what happens when you cross me. And then chapter 5 ends with him departing his house, going, so that way he can get permission from the king to kill Mordecai. And so it's right then that we're going to pick up at chapter 6 and read the entirety of its chapter. So I encourage you to follow along in chapter 6 of Esther. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. 
and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Wow. All right. This, brothers and sisters, is God's holy, inerrant word to us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us, that we might see you more truly and love you more deeply. We ask that you indeed would meet with our souls, meet with us and refresh our souls as we look at and consider what this passage teaches us about you and your inscrutable ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this chapter is, is one of the more humorous chapters in the Bible. Uh, we see in it the irony of reversal, where Mordecai is honored and Haman is, is, is humiliated. And this theme of reversal re- repeatedly occurs in Scripture. In fact, it has its culmination, you might say, or, it's, or it reaches its high point in the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. In fact, one of the most repeated passages from the, from the Old Testament is from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders have rejected has what? Has become the cornerstone. The idea of reversal God loves, God delights in confounding the wisdom of the wise. Just when you think something is done and sealed and over with, God flips it on its head and you see the opposite happen. God loves confounding the wisdom of the wise. And so bear that in mind as you live your life. You may think something is just inevitable. You may think that your life is on a track that's you see the outcome coming and you just are just whatever. 
Your life is not done until it's done. Our God loves confounding wisdom of the wise. He delights in it. Now, this passage here for me, uh, it, it really resonates, and I hope it resonates with you. Um, because when it comes to human wills, I would say, not that there are two kinds. We, we, love, we love doing that, don't we? There are two kinds of people. In the, you know. I would actually say there are probably three kinds. There are the people like Haman who are just stubbornly resistant. Who, who, who oppose the plan and the purposes of God. There are those people in the world. In fact, I would say that's the heart of natural, fallen, unregenerate man. And there are those people who are more or less pliable, and they, and they are eager to do what God wants. But there are, in the middle, I would say where most of us are, where we, we understand that God is sovereign, we understand that God is Lord, and, and we want to do what God wants us to do, but, but we struggle. We struggle because we have our own plans, our own ambitions, our own agendas. And, 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 and yes, we, we understand that God's purposes triumph, but, oh man, couldn't God's plan for me, you know, involve a little bit of what I'm wanting to I think of Tevia. If I were a rich man, would it have foiled some vast eternal plan if I was a wealthy man? Remember that? All right. And if you didn't, you're going to have nightmares. So, but that's where most of us are. We want to do what God wants, but yet we have our own agendas. And uh, and we push and we pull. And brothers and sisters, this passage confronts and dare I say, consoles our anxious, fretting hearts. This has been a very tenuous year for us. It's been a difficult year. We've had everything from unexpected. I mean, do you remember when we still have the effects of the coronavirus thing going on? But do you remember when it first came? We, we were afraid it was going to kill millions of people. We've had civil unrest that, sh- that have really rocked our, our nations to the core about just how inst- unstable we really are. We've had hurricanes. We've had economic collapse. We've had unexpected illness. We've had jobs disintegrate and disappear before our eyes. We've had our van break down on the side of the road. Seeking almost to, to, to ruin a vacation. We've had everything. Now, these things come together not to underscore really just how terrible 2020 has been, but really, if we're honest, if, if, if we're circumspect, we'll see that what 2020 has done for us, it's really a great service. 
it's really shown us how precarious our lives really are. I mean, is it not true that throughout most of human history, famine, pestilence, catastrophe, our lives are, 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 so, are so delicately balanced. And yet we, we are anxious all the time about controlling what we eat and do to make sure we're healthy and, and, and where we work and controlling our environment and our portfolios and everything to, so we have some, some semblance of control and stability because it seems when we, when, we, when we look out there that the truth is so frightening for us that we are small and frail. And this passage, this passage confronts us and it comforts us. I, I, I really believe that this passage is a comfort to God's people. This passage message to us as we look at all the world and all of its troubles and all the threats to our well-being and continued existence as we consider them all whether it's just natural forces or, or an enemy who is actually plotting the physical destruction of our people. Whatever it is. What we're shown here is that God says to us, not, you fool, you are so infinitesimally small, you don't matter at all. On the contrary, what we see here is God saying whatever comes, whatever may come, whatever will come, relax. Take a deep breath. I have this. You see, brothers and sisters, when Jesus tells us in Luke 12, do not be anxious about anything. Who of you can add a single hour to his life by being anxious? He's not just saying that. This, this truth that God has it under control is so repeatedly and so consistently presented to us. But that is the basis. And so, brothers and sisters... As we look at this passage, as we, as we enjoy the comeuppance that Haman gets, as we see this all, the real message here for you is you can relax in the face of, of all these uncertainties, in the face of all these real threats. None of it has God by surprise. Your, your life that seems to be dis derailed and, and it's a complete just 180 from what you imagined. God has it. And he's not just taking it, making it all better. Rather, this is part of his plan. He has it all under control. Will we relax or will we continue to fret and thereby not enjoy our salvation. So, I want you to recall that God is unnamed in this book. God is never mentioned. And here in this chapter, though, I think more than in any other chapter of the book, 
we clearly see God's handiwork. God is clearly active in Esther chapter 6, even though he's never mentioned. And that is how our lives work. You will probably never, some of you may on rare occasions, have some neon light flashing saying that God is working in your life. But you probably will have situations like this, where it's the confluence of improbable circumstances and coincidences that come together for fortuitous purposes. And that is when you are invited, according to Scripture, to say, wow, God was working there. So I want you... Because I believe this passage is is about comforting us, I want you, we're going to immediately go from the objective to the subjective. So the first point I want you to, if you're right, if you're taking notes, if we're going to say objective, we're going to say the first point of this sermon is God is Lord of history. But I want you to leave a space after of and between of and history because Then I want you to move to the subjective because this is where it's pastorally important for us. God is Lord of my history. God is Lord of my history. Right now, in this story, there are two threats. First is the known. The known threat is that this this morally ambivalent king has been played by this wicked, sinister, evil prime minister. And this king has sold an entire people who he didn't even care enough to know who they were or what they did, but he sold them into extermination. And this plan is going to unfold unless something happens. And according to the laws of the the Medes and the Persians, Esther is tasked with getting the king to reverse the irreversible. She's got a momentous task before her. And and she has begun her plan. God is going to use her actions and use her political savvy to accomplish his purposes. That is the first threat that they face. But the second threat, the immediate threat is the one that nobody knows anything about. You see, Haman had left that first night of feasting. He walks out and sees Mordecai, and he's infuriated by Mordecai's lack of respect. He goes home, and he plots, and he plans, and he orchestrates, and in the morning, he's going to execute So Esther knows nothing about it. Chances are Mordecai is oblivious. Chances are Mordecai is completely unaware that his life literally dangles by a thread. If this king was willing that easily to sell an entire people, how problematic do you think it's going to be for Haman to talk about executing one guy? It's not going to be a problem at all. I mean, just, it makes sense. It's going to be easy. Mordecai is going to die at dawn. 
That's, that's where the trajectory of this story is. And so Mordecai's life hangs by the slenderest of threads, and yet he doesn't even know it. And so there's nobody. There's not nobody who can go to bat for him. In regards to the first threat against the entire people, Mordecai was able to marshal Esther's participation. And so God is going to use active participation by people to bring about deliverance of his people. But here, in regards to the immediate personal threat against Mordecai, nobody's even aware. So how is anybody going to do anything? And so I believe that this passage is in here actually has a balance to the first problem. You see, if only the first problem and its solution were in the Bible, we might think that God's plan for us is absolutely dependent upon our participation. We might think that. But this second story is in here to show that God can save and God can bring about deliverance even when we're completely unaware. And right here, this is where we should step back and have eyes opened by the Spirit as we read this word. Mordecai's life is in danger, and he's not even aware of it. He's not going to learn that he's delivered until after the fact. How often in our lives are we in a precarious situation that we aren't even aware about until after the fact. And yet God has done something and we are spared from it. And it's maybe not even until after the fact that we learn about it. We spend so much time fretting about the things we don't like. The job, the way we look, the way our body's reacting to age, the, the traffic, the weather, the, what, the lighting in the room, whatever it is. And we so f- often fail to recall that every little thing God is working in and through. We see here that people's ignorance of the problem is no impediment to him actually reigning and working out his purposes in the situation. And so we marvel. Look look at this. It's that very night that the king cannot sleep. Now, there are other places in the Bible where the ruler can't sleep, and it's specifically said that the Lord burdened their heart or the Lord gave them a bad dream or something like that and made it so they couldn't. Here, it's just he can't sleep. It's not that he has a guilty conscience or we're not even told what, the, what it is. And so it invites us to consider that it's like many times for us when we just can't sleep. We don't really know why. We just can't sleep. Now, look what the Lord does here. It's that night that he can't sleep. What would have happened had he been able to sleep like a baby that night? Haman w- would have had his way. And Mordecai would have hung at dawn. Okay? So he can't sleep. So what's a king to do when you can't sleep? The sky's the limit. 
He could have had more food brought. He could have had more wine brought. He could have, he, he could have had the court jesters come put on a play. He, he, I mean, he, he, had this, he could have done anything. Even, I guess, if he was a good worker, he could have said, well, I guess it's an early day to the throne room today. But instead, what does he do? He decides to read a book. Now, isn't that something that many of us do when we can't sleep? We read a book. And he's a king, so he doesn't read a book. He has someone read to him. You know, that's, that's what you can do when you're the king. Or, you know, when, or, if, you're, or if you're the queen like Kate, she'll have, you know, she's, I had to read the Ulysses S. Grant biography so Kate could sleep. And <laughs> so, no, <laughs> I did it willingly. <laughs> And like us, he doesn't want to read riveting action, so he had him read from the chronicles of the deeds. And, and we, have, we have examples of historical artifacts of these kinds of books, and it's really dry reading. It's just like tallies of victories and body counts and, you know, how much gold was. It's just like, like an accounting list over and over. And predictably, he, they're reading, and you can imagine that King Ahasuerus is, is, is getting you know, a little drowsy. But then they get to the point about those two eunuchs at the gate who wanted, and all of a sudden, Ahasuerus is alert. I remember that. What happened to that guy, Mordecai? What did we do? You, you, you see, the Persian kings were famous for their extravagant generosity to the people who had pleased them who had served them well. It was kind of the cultural, uh, the cultural expectation that if you do something great for the king, he does something great for you to show his gratitude. It, it, it encourages future acts of, 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 of obedience and kindness and stuff like that. And we have some pretty elaborate records from the Persian kings doing amazing things for people as acts of gratitude. And lo and behold... What's been done for Mordecai? Nothing. And so when he shoots up, we got to do something. You got to understand it's because his own failure to have done something in an honor-shame society has put a problem that needs to be rectified. He has to save face. He needs to fix this and pronto or else he's not done what he's not kept his end of the bargain in the social contract so to speak. So it's not just that he's in a nice mood. He, he, he's kind of compelled culturally to do something. And then, of course, who can tell me what we should do but old boy Haman, who's just waiting for Don's first raise so he can go in and get Mordecai hung. And, and you see that Haman comes in and the king, and it's just written brilliantly, Remember how Haman never told the identity of the people to be destroyed? Well, the king saves the identity of the person to be honored until the very end. And so Haman is just led into this trap of his own making, really, where he thinks he's the one to be honored. And you see, he is so presumptive. He is so self-serving 
that he drops, all the commentaries make note of this, he drops any of those courtly uh, niceties that, that everyone else in the book uses. He doesn't say, oh, king, if it pleases you, oh, king, if I or this person have found favor, no, he goes straight to the punch. You should dress him in your clothes, put him in your crown, on your horse. Wow. He is all about himself. And, and you see that this is a glimpse of his heart. He doesn't ask for money or power. He already has all that. What does he want? Recognition. But it's actually kind of sinister what he's wanting. You see, kings were really particular about their stuff. So particular that to wear their clothes, sit on their horse, and to wear a crown that the king's worn, he's pretty much setting himself up as the king's equal. Everybody in the ancient world knew this, which is why when Jonathan and David are parting, if you go back to 1 Samuel, when they're parting, Jonathan gives David the royal garb that he's basically taken from his father because he understands that the garb belongs to the king. So if if Haman had come out right saying this about himself, it probably would have been interpreted as treason to want to be seen as equal to the king. But as a, as a gesture of grand uh, gratitude, what this is the most ostentatious display possible. And so the king says, yes, let's do that. This will, this will save face on my part. Do it to Mordecai. So how do you think it's going to go if Haman suddenly says, hey, about that Mordecai, I want you to hang this guy. No, that ain't going to happen. That is not going to happen. All right. So we see all these factors and we're marveling. Wow. God is sovereign in circumstances. It's amazing. But then we step a little further back and we see not only did God work in and through a king not sleeping him deciding what activity to do, which book was selected, which passage of the book was selected. Not only did he over superintend that. Go back years. Go back years. And the king had a servant at a gate with an inclination to report a scheme. And he had this servant who had a relationship with the queen such that that could be reported safely and relayed securely. You see, God had positioned years before Mordecai and Esther, and in a cultural oops moment, he had had years ago the king forget or neglect to do his duty so that at this point, there could be a social gaffe that needed to be corrected pronto. And so we see that God's not only sovereign in the moment, but that God, as the grand marshal of history, had set in motion and had set players in place for that night. It's astounding to think So what are you facing? Mordecai didn't even know about this. 
And yet God is busy working to deliver and save him. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how frustrated you may feel right now. I don't know what circumstance you are going through right now. I don't know. I don't know every problem you're facing. I don't know every decision that you've made or had or that is on the plate to be made. But I do know this. God consistently and repeatedly demonstrates in his word that he is working in history for the good of his people. Your life is not an accident. Your life is part of the intentional plan and purpose of God. And every single coincidence that happens is actually of divine orchestration. Where his purposes are being manifest in history. That is called providence. And his providence is not only sovereign. He's not only large and in charge, but it's good. He blesses his people. So your life, you may feel like you are stuck in a rut, like you are up against the wall, like you are up the creek without a paddle. You can just go on with the metaphors. But here's the bottom line. You are right where God wants you right now. And he is directing your every step, your every circumstance, your every diagnosis, every fluctuation of the market, every relational high, every relational low is part of the circumstance, the web that is our reality, which is the matrix in which God's plan is revealed. And it is good for you. Will not he who delivered his own son for us, indeed give us all things. Yes and amen. So the Lord is not just the Lord of history. He's the Lord of my history. He's the Lord of your history. He's the Lord of Mordecai's history. He's the Lord of Esther's history. Each of us, he knows us by name. You are not just the rabble. You are not just part of a voting block. He knows you and he loves you. And he orchestrates history for your redemption, for your deliverance, for your good. And that brings us to the second point, which is briefly. God is deliverer. Now, put a space between is and deliverer. And put in my deliverer. Mordecai in this chapter didn't have the opportunity to trust in princes or horses, chariots, swords, strength of arms, intelligence, wit. Mordecai was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. He was oblivious. And brothers and sisters... I, and I dare say you, we are inclined to think that our deliverance is in some measure up to us. That if we're going to be successful and safe, then we've got to engage the process. And, And that may be true at one level. 
But it's also true in the larger picture that you and I, we are not in control. There is one who is, and that is the Lord. You see, the Lord will save his people. Not one of those who the Son has been sent to save will perish. Every single promise will be fulfilled. And that's what this story is reminding us. God's not just concerned with the big meta-narrative. He's concerned with the micro. He's not just concerned with big movements of history, the genocide of a people. He's concerned with the individual, the execution of a single seemingly disrespectful gate guard. His church will be built. Your life is in his hands. Remember what Jesus says. Sparrows, they're sold two for a penny. Things were a lot cheaper back in that day, I guess. But not one of them falls from the sky apart from the will of the Father. But take heart, because we are worth more than a sparrow. Okay, so understand this. God's care is over the most minute and seemingly insignificant of things. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die in your place. And he has adopted you into his family and has promised you a share of the inheritance. So in this world that is filled with threats, we can take heart knowing that God himself will step up to the plate to bring us safely home. Even when we are unaware of the threats, our Lord will fulfill his purposes for us so you can walk tall knowing that you are safe in the hand of God. Third, God is, I'm just going to step to the point, God is my warrior. Now I thought about saying defender, but you got to understand that th- this really is not, this really is not Veggie Tales Christianity right here. Okay, Haman is not just some blowhard. He's not a schoolyard bully. He's a, he's an incredibly powerful man with an incredibly wicked plan. He is, he, you don't, you don't want to get in his way, okay? He's, 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 he will kill you just because you looked at him cross-eyed. He's a bad, dangerous man. And God, he vindicates his people. This, this is what we have to understand, and I think Christianity has, has lost this for a long time, is the, the reason we turn the other cheek, the reason... We don't avenge ourselves is because the New Testament tells us to leave room for the vengeance of God. At a deep, visceral level, we know that it is a beautiful thing to know that God will take up arms against those who harm his children. Every good father and mother but specifically father, a father who will not physically protect his children is a bad father. 
our God is our Father, and he will fight to protect and vindicate and exonerate us. And so here, Haman is a warning. This is not some joke that God is playing on Haman. Haman is an example of Psalm 2, where the nations rage and the kings and the peoples together plot against the Lord. How can we throw off his bonds? But what does it say the Lord does? The Lord looks down from heaven and he laughs and he holds them in derision. You see, this here is Haman getting the judgment of God. What has Haman valued above all else? Public recognition. So the first expression of God's justice against him is he is humiliated. He's humiliated. And now in just, just a moment, you see that, that the tide of God's justice is sweeping Haman away. That as he goes home and he's mourning, and this is the same Hebrew word that earlier in the book is attributed to the Jews when Haman's edict comes out. So the tables have turned. The tide of God's justice is sweeping Haman away. He doesn't even have time to collect his thoughts. And the king's guards come and get him to take him to Esther where it's going to be curtains for all Haman. First, he's humiliated. And then next week we'll see he's disgraced. And then he's dead. Brothers and sisters, this is a warning to those who are in that first category of wills that I told you about this morning. Those out there who refuse to submit to God, who refuse to kiss the Son, as Psalm 2 says, this is the future for those who oppose God to the end. God will fight for his people. He will fight for you. So every, every wronging that happens to you, know that God does not just take it in stride. He's storing up vengeance against all of his enemies and yours. Our Lord is our warrior. And so we, in this day, in this age, we appeal to people, believe, repent, turn, kiss the Son, love and serve Him. Because the day comes when there is no repentance left, no opportunity to be found, and the only thing left is to reap what one has sown. And so for us as God's people, though, Know that though you may experience hardship and trial and trouble and abuse, persecution, our Lord will honor you and vindicate you because he loves you dearly. So this passage teaches us at least three things. God is Lord of your history. God is your deliverer. And God is your warrior. So, no matter what comes, whether your van breaks down, whether you get a sudden unexpected diagnosis of something terrible, whether your job evaporates tomorrow, take a deep breath. Remember, God has this. And walk in faith 
and obedience. Let's pray.